Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello everyone, welcome to the History of England, episode 156, Reavers. Last week we had the last of the great English victories in France in the Hundred Years' War, and Gloucester's rather fun little adventure, which gave a rather graphic expression to the bone-headed noblesse oblige, which is a constant theme of, well, history really. This week we're going to reach 1427-ish from a domestic point of view so that the week after we can do Joan of Arc, which is too good a story to miss just on the flimsy grounds that it's actually French history. Now, I can guess what you're thinking. You are thinking, come on David, put your skates on. How can it take an entire episode to cover that amount of ground? Well, there's a nice bit of violence coming up and I thought I'd take the opportunity to link that to the slightly facile point that really you can put a cigarette paper between the violence amongst the nobility that we describe as politics and the violence amongst the nobility that we describe as crime and then tell you a bit about the problems of lawlessness in the realm during Henry's minority and beyond. And then take the chance to talk just a little bit about the most lawless place of all, the Northern Marches, whence the word Reavers. But let's do the politics first. So, as I mentioned last time, Gloucester came back from the arduous business of leaving your wife in the lurch to find a rather changed political environment. Whereas before, Protectorate England was a model of good and even-handed governance, with patronage handed out evenly and sensibly, when Gloucester took his eye off the ball, Beaufort put his fingers in the till, and suddenly his was the only game in town. Gloucester was not happy, bunny-wise. Now, I'm not going to go through a wearisome list of all the positions that Beaufort handed out to his cronies, because you'd moan at me. But I will mention one. A chap called Richard Woodville, 
who was appointed to be custodian of the Tower of London in 1425. Richard Woodville falls into the category of something not much more than a local notable. A local sheriff, sure enough, but never knighted, and married his daughter to the local gentry, so he's that sort of level. But it just so happens that he had a connection to the ruling house. He'd campaigned with Henry V, he was steward to the Duke of Bedford. So there were plenty of crumbs falling off the table, which he diligently picked up. So remember the name, Woodville. It will be a significant name later in the Wars of the Roses. Oakley Doakley, onward. The incident that was to provide the flashpoint between Gloucester and Beaufort had absolutely nothing to do with patronage and power. It had everything to do with xenophobia. There were Flemings all over the place in London, which is unsurprising. They were some of the leading merchants in Europe, they were hugely important in the weaving industry, and they were, BTW and FYI, our allies. The Duke of Burgundy was also the Count of Flanders. None of that meant anything to the local Londoner in all his or her glory. What they saw was a bunch of Johnny foreigners taking their jobs. A series of nastily worded bills appeared around London attacking these foreigners. Beaufort, and through him Bedford, were not happy about this, what with Gloucester still being on the continent, making his own contribution towards alliance breaking with his temporary wife Jacquetta. So Beaufort took action against said Londoners and prepared for trouble by reinforcing the Tower of London. Demonstrations duly erupted against both Beaufort and the foreigners. Then in 1425, while all this was going on, Gloucester came home and he found Richard Woodville installed as custodian of the Tower. Now Gloucester had a different residence in London, he had Castle Baynard, which unlike the White Tower has not survived, but basically it was the other major fortification in London. But he hopped over to the Tower, telling Woodville that he wanted to live there for a while, while there's all this unrest. After all, he was supposed to be protector of the realm and he'd like to do a bit of protecting if that was all right. Also, there was a friar in prison there that he'd like to meet, a chap who apparently knew all about witchcraft, and Gloucester was interested in a spot of witchcraft. Now, Woodville was anxious about all of this. Gloucester was thought of as a Londoner, and Gloucester was immensely popular with the Londoners. Gloucester was something of a wild man, and demonstrably careless of the needs of careful public policy. Gloucester was furiously, viciously cross with Beaufort. And meanwhile, there were demonstrations all over the shop against said Beaufort. So Woodville shut the doors in Gloucester's face and told him, regretfully but firmly, to sling his hook. Well... Gloucester's flabber was well and truly ghasted, I can tell you. Here he was, protector of the blessed realm, and some little tick was telling him what he could and couldn't do. Meanwhile, Woodville sent a panicky letter to Beaufort, and the heat in the kitchen hitched up another notch. Gloucester now decided that mobs could actually be useful, and maybe he could harness mob rule against his enemy. So he rode the wave of the mob, whipping them up and egging them on. Protector and defender of the realm he might be, but protector and defender of Bishop Beaufort he was not, and by October there were mobs all over the place. Now, as it happens, Bishop Beaufort of Winchester owned most of Southwark at the southern end of London Bridge, and so in a lather he gathered an army and fortified the bridge and closed the gates. Gloucester was super outraged. As far as he was concerned, this was a direct threat to him and an offence against the realm. He was also to accuse Beaufort of trying to block him from going to see the king at Elton Palace, which lay over the bridge. 
Given Henry was only four at this stage, I can't imagine what he was going to do about anything, but it is interesting to note just how important access to the king was at all times. Anyway, Gloucester responded to Beaufort's move, calling in the new mayor and alderman of London and commanding them to man the bridge at the other end, the London end, and close it to all comers. And so there they sat, both groups glaring at each other across the ancient bridge. Actually, Gloucester was able to claim with some justice that by closing the gates of London he had in fact kept the peace, by keeping Beaufort and his private army separate from the mob, which would in all likelihood have charged over the bridge and attacked Southwark. Meanwhile, Beaufort was in constant communication with Bedford over in France. It's inconceivable he would have felt able to appoint Richard Woodville to the Tower without his support. And so now he wrote to Bedford thus. Right high and mighty prince, as you desire the welfare of the king of his realms of England and France, and of your own will, and ours also, haste you hither. For by my troth, if you tarry, we shall put this land in adventure with a battle. Such a brother you have here. God make him a good man. Beaufort very probably felt that he had Bedford's confidence and backing. He'd kept him in the know, got his sign-off, and Bedford was clearly a serious, competent man, eager to rule wisely and well, not a wild, charismatic adventurer like his brother Gloucester. So Beaufort would have felt pretty comfortable that if Bedford would get over, he'd back him up, and he'd be fine. For two months the two factions looked at each other, with mediators shuttling back and forth, and all their efforts at least stopped them breaking each other's heads, but they had not a snowball's chance in hell of actually brokering a reconciliation. For that, the big boss was required. And duly in January 1426, the big boss Bedford and Countess Anne entered London, and at his side was Beaufort. Londoners were appalled at the implication. Beaufort was very probably standing there, feeling just a little smug. As they processed along to Westminster Palace, they were accompanied by the sound of grinding from Gloucester's direction, and no doubt Gloucester's steward was making notes to get an appointment for his boss with the dentist. Bedford called a Parliament, double quick time, and within the record time of six weeks, Parliament was assembled at the fine city of Leicester. It was a tense affair, so much so that it became known as the Parliament of Bats, and not because it was held in a belfry but because things were so tense that all the magnates and entourages were ordered to leave their swords at home. So instead, they brought bats. So as Parliament went on inside the hall, the vast crowds of retainers milled and shoved and pushed outside, all eyeing each other's equipment. Next day, bats were banned as well, and so everyone stuck rocks up their sleeves. The potential for violence was ever-present. So, as I say, Beaufort was probably feeling pretty good as he went into the Parliament. But look, in the end, blood is thicker than water. The actual outcome was that Gloucester was required to graciously accept the professions Beaufort was required to make, which is hardly a tough gig. While Beaufort was required to declare his affection for Gloucester and undertake to serve him as he should. And then he was required to swear an oath of loyalty to the King before the whole assembly and deny the charges made against him. So this time it was Beaufort Stewart who would have been checking the diary for the dentist appointments. The whole thing was essentially a humiliation for Beaufort while Gloucester came out of it smelling of roses. No one said life was fair. Within a few days Beaufort had resigned the chancellorship and announced he was off on pilgrimage. 
Gloucester's position was secure, Beaufort's influence heavily decreased. But the following years didn't descend into an orgy of power for Gloucester either. Though the balance of power was a tad more precarious, the council remained. Gloucester was contained and a reasonable balance maintained. In 1428, Gloucester finally managed to formally dump Jacquetta, and immediately everyone understood why, because Gloucester's eye had been caught by one of Jacquetta's attendants, Eleanor of Cobham, and before you could say Jack Robinson, they were married. Quite clearly, there'd been more than a bit of slap and tickle over the preceding years to boot. The world was outraged, and the world was horrified. Neither Eleanor nor Gloucester appear to have given a tinker's curse about the world's horror and outrage. And as it happens, the marriage was a great success. They developed a manor at Greenwich into a pleasure garden called La Plaisance, encircled by a wall with walks bordering the Thames, a tower and a conduit. There they gathered poets, musicians, scholars, physicians and their friends and formed a miniature court. Essentially, they had a hoot. Although no one in medieval times should forget the turn of the wheel of fortune. So all of this sounds like high political drama, and so I guess it was. But at heart, what we have here is a deadly, aristocratic rivalry between Beaufort and Gloucester. The dispute is kind of dignified by the fact that it's about the governance of the realm and that sort of thing. But throughout the land, from high to low, this kind of rivalry is endemic. And violence is endemic with it. And Henry's minority is something of a golden age of lawlessness, which rises around the kingdom like a tide. Medieval man needed a king to keep him in line. There were legal processes to keep folk honest, of course. Starting at the bottom and going upwards, there was the manorial court, the ecclesiastical courts, then there was the shire court run by the sheriff and the justice of the peace, the JP, more of them in a min. Then there's all the legal apparatus of the royal justice system, the king's bench in Westminster, the legal profession strung out along the inns of court in London. And then if you didn't get the justice you wanted, you could appeal to the Chancellor or to the Council itself or write a letter in the strongest possible terms to your MP who would raise a petition at the next Parliament. If there was widespread wrongdoing, Parliament or the King might order an oye or termine, literally to hear and determine, a special legal investigation. But while all this sounds thoroughly organised and impressive, the reality varied wildly from the model and not in a good way. The problem was that medieval society was incapable of finding an effective way of law enforcement that didn't rely on the local power of the landowners and the magnates. And as we'll see, it was often precisely these men who were part of the problem. Now that wasn't entirely the case, of course. There was a lot of crime about, which was exactly what you'd expect. Outlaws, thieves who lived at the margin of society and who fled to the physical margins such as the woods and wasteland. The relationship between tenant and landowner was one that obviously and unsurprisingly created tension. Much of this was directed against ecclesiastical landowners, possibly because anti-clericalism in the 15th century was particularly strong. The unfree tenant hated labour services, distracting, demeaning. There are plenty of examples in the 1420s of tenants banding together to refuse their service. Students are a lawless lot, are they not? Light-fingered, drunken, promiscuous, Tusk, and I say Tusk. Well, apparently, twas ever thus, and even more so back then. 
1429, there's a famous example of students at Cambridge University organising a local protection racket, distributing bills to local gentlemen and threatening them with arson unless they handed over payment. Just like students, always arson around. So all of this and other stuff went on, but the real problem was with the supposed guardians of the system. The local landowners and office holders that were supposed to be the mainstay of the system were very often the problem. And many areas were so remote that any sense of royal justice was very distant. This remoteness could be physical, Devon and Cornwall for example, or it could be legal. The big franchises, as they're often called, where royal power was effectively delegated to local barons or office holders, the Welsh marches, the palatinates of Chester and Lancaster and Durham, the northern marches. In all of these, royal justice was very remote. There was so much opportunity to abuse the system once you were in a position of power that the abuse became more the norm than the exception. It might be a bailiff extorting bribes. It might be the sheriff. And in fact, a bit of palm greasing was just expected in the sheriff's case. There's a lovely example in Northumberland where the sheriff's extortion had actually become an accepted custom with a set rate so that their MP actually had to raise a petition in Parliament to remove it. And in normal times, then, the only real check on this power was that of the king. Henry V had cleaned things up a bit by using the Oye and Termine approach, sending out direct inquiries that were less susceptible to local bribes and influence. And as we saw with Arundel's violence, Henry directly tackled his magnates. But without a king, many local magnates felt themselves off the leash. The practice of maintenance was particularly nasty. Liveried servants of a powerful lord who were protected from prosecution by their lord's influence. For example, a chap called William Fitzhugh in Yorkshire found himself unable to recover his dead father's estates. The coroner and sheriff were part of his enemy's affinity and so they packed juries and obstructed legal procedures, everything they could do to stop him coming into his rightful inheritance. This wasn't a new problem. Livery and maintenance had been the target of legislation in Richard II's time, and eventually, in 1429, it was again. It was endemic, from the local gentleman to the baron and the magnate. It was part of a lord's dignity, and unfortunately Parliament was a spectacularly bad example, as we heard of in the Parliament of Bats. The magnates fought over precedence between them and were accompanied by clouds of their own affinity, all confident if they tweaked the laws a bit here and there and was a bit of rough and tumble, that their powerful master would make sure they were untouchable. Competition then between aristocrats was just part of the way of their lives. And it was often this that caused the most violence. The inveterate feud between John Mowbray, Duke of Norfolk, and John Holland, Earl of Huntingdon, got so bad that in 1428, JPs were forbidden by Gloucester to hold sessions while he investigated personally. The history of the Paston family shows the dangers they faced in getting caught in the crossfire of the struggle for land and power in East Anglia between the Dukes of Norfolk and Suffolk. In 1437, violence broke out between two Bedfordshire barons about who was able to control the sessions of local JPs. Which is sweet irony, really. There was no embarrassment whatsoever about justice being supposedly impartial. It was there to be controlled by the local top dog. 
so this went to all levels of society, not just magnates. In 1423, there were so many feuds between the gentry and Cheshire that by 1426 the Duke of Exeter was forced to intervene and arrest the whole lot of them. When you combine these things, the local struggle for power and influence at all levels of society and the local nature of the agencies of law enforcement, you get impossible conflicts. So in the village of Silso in Bedfordshire, the rivalry of two local lords was notorious, Lord Fanhope and Lord Grey of Ruthin. Imagine the kerfuffle when one of these blokes, Fanhope in this case, had the presidency of the sessions of the justices and the business at hand was to investigate the activities of the other, Grey. There was no way Grey was going to allow this to happen and the sessions had to be abandoned because of violence. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Violence could be large-scale. In 1431, Edward Ferrers essentially led an army against Joan Beecham, Lady of Abergavenny. There is, however, no need to weep for Joan. We've come across her before, and she's worthy of study, a powerful woman if ever there was one. When her father died, the land was left in male tail, but to Joan for her life. She was an extremely rare example of a woman who held official office. She fought with every local rival wherever she held land to increase her land and property, including working over her own nephew, the Earl of Warwick. And finally, aristocratic violence was not just the result of rivalries and the desire to increase landed estates at the expense of other lords. It was also just because they had an opportunity to make money. Lord Talbot, a major figure in the war in France, terrorised Herefordshire from Goodrich Castle, extorting payments, chucking folk in dungeons until they paid up, just like any other petty criminal. In 1424, the constable of Barclay Castle nipped over to the Priory of Goldcliffe and rustled a herd of cattle. A week later, he attacked the Priory itself. Essentially, all that stuff about robber barons is all absolutely true. The lunatics were in charge of the asylum. In this context, you can have some sympathy with the need for a strong autocratic monarchy able to have an impact. And as protector, Gloucester did his best, and equally, the council did their best. As we've seen, the very lords and magnates that sat in Parliament and on the council were themselves part of the problem. So recognising this, in 1433, all of them were required to swear an oath to preserve the peace. In the oath, they all undertook not to maintain criminals, not to influence officials, or give livery to officials. They undertook to ensure everyone in their locality took the same oath. Now this sounds feeble, but appears, in fact, to actually have had some effect. Again, the influence of the magnates was critical in either causing or preventing disorder. 
To give him his due, Gloucester did take his duties as protector reasonably seriously, and in this area at least, outside his own quarrels with Beaufort, he did have some impact. In 1427, he finally brought to justice a gang led by one William War that had ruthlessly robbed nunneries and monasteries, travellers and merchants. And War himself and many of his gang were hanged. And then in 1431, we have the so-called Lollard Rising. Actually, as a rising, it's not terribly clear how many involved were religiously motivated and how far Lollardy was just an excuse. Certainly anything with a pattern of heresy upped the temperature considerably. The solemn and public burning of Thomas Bagley, an elderly Essex priest, could have provided a trigger point, but the rising of 1431 was clearly coordinated, since there was trouble all over southern England. The Lollards used preaching as the way of spreading their message, and posted bills and used itinerant textile workers and artisans to spread the news. On the 3rd of March 1431 then, at St Giles's Church in London, the rising started and quickly spread until a leader appeared in Abingdon in Oxfordshire called John Sharp, leading gangs from the now rather well-heeled village of East Hendred to sack Abingdon Abbey. It was Gloucester that very publicly led the reaction against the uprising. And by May, Sharp's head was on a spike, he'd been captured at Oxford, tried in front of Gloucester himself and beheaded as a traitor. Gloucester's reputation and popularity soared. Which brings me to the most spectacular example of violence, the borders, namely the borders between England and Scotland. A thought on that, possibly unwise for me to voice, but hey. During the relatively recent referendum on Scottish independence, there was an interview with some bloke who'd emigrated to the UK and, as it happens, come to live in England. Now, I have to admit that I was rather keen on the idea of the Scots heading off, if such was their desire. But this bloke rather impressively and simply, remarked that where there are borders of any kind, there is conflict. So why introduce any more borders? This is without doubt true of the northern marches of England and Scotland. It's the border itself that created centuries of hideous and endemic violence. Conflict, death and poverty. A whole ecosystem and society distinct from the rest of England and Scotland with its own rules and definitions simply caused by the existence of a border, which disappeared when James VI of Scotland became James I of England as well. It had not always been so. Before Edward I stuck in his oversized boots in 1286 with the start of the Wars of Independence, there was, of course, some violence and raiding between Scotland and England every so often. But these were led by political flare-ups and diplomatic failures and were relatively isolated. In fact... The two countries shared a very amicable relationship up to that point, and the lowland Scot had more in common with the English than with the Highlands. But from the 14th to the 13th centuries, all of that changed. While I'm on the topic, any of you who have not gone to the borders, whether the English or the Scottish side, you need to go. There you will find some of the most stunning countryside Britain has to offer. On the Scottish side at least, it has also produced some rugby players that I remember for the rest of my life. Rutherford, Laidlaw, just to name a two. But that's another story. The Northern Marches, as they were called, were broken into three administrative sections on both sides of the line. A West, Middle and East. 
the East March was centred around Berwick, and of the three marches was the one favoured most by the Scots for major raids. This was because it was the smallest of the English marches and more accessible. The Middle March, on the other hand, was as bleak as bleak can be across the Cheviot Hills, and then the Western March centred on Carlisle, and if you've ever walked down Butchergate in Carlisle late on a Saturday night, you will get a flavour of what life would have been like on the marches. Each of the sections had its own warden, and then at the top was an overall warden. On the Scottish side, the wardens tended to be drawn from local families. In England, wherever possible this was avoided, reflecting a different approach, but by and large, there was simply no point in trying to avoid the power and influence of the local families. The Percy family ruled the English Eastern March, whoever was warden there. And by the 15th century, the same was true of the Nevilles on the Western side. Life on the marches, both sides, was hard. A life of constant danger where at any time a riding might appear at the head of your valley, a riding being a word for a raiding party of reavers. And while the inaccessibility of many of the villagers might be a defence, it was also a vulnerability. If you were caught unawares, you were on your own. Life in the borders therefore had a cycle. As the nights drew in during the autumn, the raiding season started. The summer months were for husbandry, for sheep and cattle raising, and people would move into small remote dwellings called shielings, rough huts next to pasture lands up on the hills. But in the autumn and winter, these same folk would move back to the valleys and their little communities and brace themselves for the worst. With the frequency of raids, there was little point on going for beauty and elegance in your buildings. You were looking for something that combined strength and ephemera. So winter quarters would be made of clay, maybe stones, small, square, squat. Roofs of turf, which was difficult to burn. But equally, if they were burned, which they often would be, sadly, they could be easily replaced. If you did go for permanence, as you might do in the larger villages, you went for defensibility. And the model was called the Bassel House. Extremely thick stone walls, about one metre thick, with the ground floor devoted to stable space for the most valuable animals and a vaulted stone or flat timber floor between it and the first floor without internal access, such as a stairway or a ladder. The family's living quarters were on the floor above the ground and were only reachable by a ladder, which of course was pulled up from the inside at night. The windows were small or even only arrow slits. The other thing you might build were peel towers, thick walls made of stone, three or four storeys high. The local lord would live here, and if the reavers arrived, you legged it into the tower, watched your cattle leave with the reavers, and hoped that the reavers weren't looking for more than that. After 1455, peel towers were required by law to have a basket for signal fires at the top of them. So news would spread that a riding was on the way, and the news would be passed to the warden. The warden would raise his men and try to come and help. It might be that the reavers were looking for more from your village, and if they were, and you had to abandon the tower, you left the walls stuffed with smouldering peat, which apparently made it difficult to burn or blow up, so that you could come and rebuild once they'd left. The border reaver was a specialist, with specialist equipment. The most crucial part was the horse, called a hobbler or hobby, 
small, active, trained and bred for the terrain and crucial for the reavers to move quickly around. They would not have looked like a grand army, but they wore clothes and protection that allowed a trade-off between protection and lightness. So normally they wore something called a jack, a quilted coat of leather sewn with plates of metal or horn. And on the head would be the steel bonnet, basically a metal salad bowl. Along with the leather boots and breeches, reavers would wear a badge, maybe the flag of St George for England, or the saltire of Scotland, or maybe letters embroidered into their caps. For weapons, lance and bow were favoured until the arrival of firearms. The big thing about border society was the tribe, or the family. Wardens would come and go, royal initiatives and commands, they'd come and go as well. One year the King of Scotland or England would lead an army in a war with slogans and justifications. But when they were gone, the border clans remained. There's a link to a map on the website where you can see all these families and where their heartlands were. And seriously, it doesn't take much imagination to know that the main loyalties lay here rather than with the King. On the English side, a family's loyalty would be to the Carltons or the Forsters, Grahams, Fenix or Percys. On the Scottish side, to the Armstrong, Scots, Kerrs, Humes, and many, many more. And it's to these tribes they'd give their loyalty. As the beacons flared and the reavers appeared at the head of the valley, it was to these people that they needed to turn for protection. The warden would be too far away to help them in the short term. Their second loyalty also might not be to their king or their warden, it might just be to the other border folk. Like any closed society caught in this kind of suffocating obsession, it was better than ever they knew. Their constant struggle for survival with their opponents across the line might make life hard, but they understood each other's lives. The law they followed was the law of the march and therefore special to them. So when raids were organised, don't imagine for a moment that this was always or only Scott against Englishmen. It was just as likely Armstrong against Graham, Elliot against Routledge. Both sides married, constantly, and it's like Romeo and Juliet on speed, a mad cat's cradle of alliances and vendettas that make Capulet and Montague look like a cakewalk. I remember a very interesting article about Afghanistan that impressed me that made the point that the local networks, rivalries, loyalties and relationships were just impossible for an outsider to understand and deal with, and it would have been exactly the same on the borders. The viciousness of border society grew to a crescendo in the 16th century as the Tudors and Stuarts fenced and jockeyed for position across the border. When James came to the throne in 1603, it would have been quite possible for the borders to remain a hotbed of crime and violence, driven by the fuel of all those local rivalries from the preceding centuries. But over seven years, James broke the back of the old families, and they were disarmed, marcher law was done away with, the law was strictly enforced and the gallows swung with the dead frequently. Brutal, but in the end it left a country fit to live in, where before it had scarcely been so. Now then, for our weekly word, I thought I'd investigate some of the odd words we use today in our wee segment about reavers. I have to confess I'm not sure I came up with anything terribly thrilling, no themes about all the words coming from the same source or something exciting like that. In fact, you'd simply draw the conclusions, as you would in many places, that, gosh, we borrow words from all over the place in English. Reaver is a word with a Germanic root, generally meaning to plunder or rob. 
It's probably more widely used now in the form bereaved. It's a good word, isn't it? If you've met a reaver, you probably don't need the word explained. It kind of sounds like it is, I've been reaved. Which could be why it's been rediscovered a bit. It was used in the film Firefly, wasn't it? I think they get attacked by reavers. And maybe Mad Max? But traditionally, it became used specifically for the border raiders we talked about today. Sheeling gets officially used first in the 16th century, but in its original Norse form, scarling was used much earlier to bring the sense of shed. Not much to add to that, except maybe I should refer to myself as a scarling podcaster. But Bustle House was slightly more interesting. That comes from Old French and shares the same Latin root of bastire, to build. And then that gets to bastille, as in bastille, let them eat cake, rush, bastille day, all that sort of thing. Which kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Sort of fortified place. Hobby, the light but hardy horse the reavers preferred, is again probably Old French. Not entirely clear where it comes from, but it could well be a derivative of a rustic variant of the name Robin, i.e. Hobbin. So you can imagine these small horses, so vital to the reaver's life, being affectionately called Hobbin. And somewhere along the line it becomes the standard word for such a horse. Like Hoover, you know, that sort of thing. And then finally, Peel Tower, which was quite interesting. A late 12th century Anglo-Norman word going back to the Latin palus, meaning stake. From that you get to palisade, or a ring of stakes enclosing an area for defence. And the word pale also begins to mean any enclosed, fortified place. So from pale, you have peel tower, a fortified tower. You also probably know about the name the pale, which was the area around Dublin in the 18th century, which had become the only part of Ireland that the English controlled in any meaningful sense, and therefore led to the expression beyond the pale, meaning outside acceptable society or behaviour, as in, that Voldemort, he really is beyond the pale in it. So there you go. Turned out to be a surprisingly long episode this week, much against the run of play and expectations. Next time, which will of course be in two weeks' time, since I have a relaxing, stress-free weekend off, we have one of the most remarkable stories of all time, Joan of Arc, with the help of my daughter. A donator to thank before I go, Bob, thank you. The coin competition is now finally closed, ladies and gents, and the draw will be completed soon, and the lucky people contacted. Thank you to all of you who took part. That's all for now. Thanks so much for all your comments on iTunes, website, Facebook, and all that sort of thing. Good luck, everyone, and have a great couple of weeks. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.